a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn it to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, listen for a story about a needed home repair. Listen for a story about a home repair. Second, be listening for the problem with who Samson wants to marry. What's the problem with who Samson wants to marry? And third, be listening for a reference to a car battery. Be listening to a reference for a reference to a car battery. Well, many of you will know that we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of Judges over the past few months. And if you've been around, you know that we've been saying that Judges is a book that does two things for us. One, it exposes us to the fickleness and the unfaithfulness of our own hearts in stark ways. This is a pretty dark book. But right alongside the darkness of this book, we see the love and the relentless pursuit of God. We see one who refuses to give up on his people. And maybe that's exactly what you need to hear this morning. Maybe you need to hear right from the start that no matter how unfaithful you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how horrible you feel, no matter the struggles that you experience, God has not given up on you. God never turns away from you. The fact that you're sitting here this morning is evidence that he's trying to get your attention with his love and with his grace. Over the next two weeks, we'll be taking a look together at the 12th and final judge. He's a man by the name of Samson. And we'll see that Samson is a fitting climax to this dark book. Samson is a deeply flawed judge. He's a drunkard. He's a womanizer. He's a fighter. He's an angry man. Things have been on a slow decline through the book of Judges with both the people and the judges themselves. And in this passage, we see that things have gotten so bad that God's people don't even know they need to be rescued. And on top of that, no one is even around in Israel that God can use to rescue his people. So he's got to start from scratch in a sense by raising up a rescuer with a miraculous birth. Using the flawed Samson to save Israel from their enemies. Let's start reading in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son." Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And skipping to verse 24, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanad Dan, between Zorah and Astaol. 
Now, verse one, Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. There used to be a patch of wood on the side of my house that was rotten. And the wood siding was actually touching the roof itself so that every time it rained and my roof got wet, the, roof, the wood also got soaked. And over time, the, the water did some pretty significant damage to the wood. The wood itself became warped and brittle, and it was expensive to completely replace this siding on my house. So I did things to slow the deterioration. I swept the leaves off the roof. I painted the wood from time to time. I made sure the gutters were clear so water would drain properly. But no matter what I did, every time it rained, I knew that the wood was slowly getting worse. The siding was in a slow process of deterioration. And it's not unlike what we've seen as we worked our way through the book of Judges together. It's a part of the book's overall thrust, in fact. You see a slow, steady descent into deterioration. It's meant to paint a picture for us of what life looks like lived apart from God. When we try to do life on our own, according to our own rules and our own ideas, what we get is a slow, steady descent into spiritual deterioration. In our passage this morning, we're coming to the end of that deterioration. In fact, as we get to the end of this book, we see that God's people eventually become so faithless that it's shameful and embarrassing. This morning, as we see this descent into faithlessness progress, I want us to consider three things using this passage to guide us. First, I want us to see what we are called to as God's people. Second, I want us to see where we find ourselves as God's people. And third, I want us to see God's commitment to his people. In other words, in this passage, we're confronted with who we should be, confronted with who we are, and confronted with who God is. First, let's take a look at what we're called to as God's people. As you might remember, the book of Judges recounts the time just after God's people had entered the promised land of Canaan. And remember, they had been liberated from 400 years of slavery in the land of Egypt through God's mighty actions on their behalf. They'd been led through the desert for 40 years, being cared for by God himself. And finally, they enter the land of Canaan. And the book of Judges is a book that recounts how God's people are getting settled in this new home of theirs. And it's important to know that the promised land, it was not an end in and of itself for God's people. Sure, it was a significant and a beautiful milestone for God's people. Sure, they would have been looking to enjoy God's goodness in this land flowing with milk and honey. Sure, they should enjoy the good things God was giving them and celebrate with great joy. But entering the promised land was just the beginning of Israel's mission. It was not the end. 
The promised land wasn't the end. It was a means to an end. It was meant to be the place where God's people set up shop and could finally get about their grand mission of blessing the entire world. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we find the headwaters of God's mission for this world, an outline of what God is doing in calling and establishing a group of people. God, from the very beginning, calls people to Himself and then points them out toward mission. Genesis 12 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has always had a missional intent for his people. As God's people enter the promised land, it is meant to be a home base for their mission of blessing the families of the earth. The light that they established there in Canaan was meant to radiate out and touch the ends of the earth. Canaan was not a destination for God's people. It was meant to be an outpost for God's grand mission of blessing the entire world. And now, how was Israel meant to accomplish this grand mission once they entered this outpost, you might be wondering? Well, one of the primary ways God's people accomplish this mission of blessing is by remaining distinct. By remaining distinct. God's people have always been called to be different from the people around them. It's why they're given certain laws. It's why they're allowed to eat certain foods and not eat others. It's why they're called to wear certain things and not wear others. It's why they're called to engage in certain religious activity that other nations don't engage in. They were always meant to be distinct, always meant to establish a community where they both affirm and challenge the surrounding culture. Look, as God's people affirm God's common grace in our culture, what we're doing is we're highlighting the goodness and the truth and the beauty that we see even through the vandalism of sin. We can do that. We can affirm the good and true and beautiful things that we see in our culture. But in this fallen world, sin has impacted God's good creation in a devastating way. So God's people, they're also meant to press against the things that oppose God and don't lead to human flourishing. We challenge those things that aren't good and true and beautiful. And this implicitly means that there are standards. There are standards. There are some activities and lifestyles that lead to human flourishing. Some things that we do that lead to our joy and our liberation and our life. And there are some activities and lifestyles that lead to human disintegration. That lead to spiritual strength being sapped. And God's people have always been called to resist our culture. We are meant to be antithetical in some ways to the culture that surrounds us. As we engage as distinct people in our culture, as we stand in antithesis to the culture around us, we will be challenging what does not lead to human flourishing. That's part of our calling. As God's people, we will be challenging sexual ethics that oppose God's design for human flourishing. 
As God's people, we will be challenging the destruction of human life through abortion. We'll be challenging the abuse of power. We'll be challenging racism when and where we see it in our culture. We should be pushing back on greed where we find it in our own lives and in society at large. We should highlight what care for the immigrant and the sojourner might look like. We should be leading the way in promoting what is just and right and fair in this world. We stand in antithesis to everything that opposes God's way of flourishing. We are salt and light that God sends into this decaying and dark world. And unless the church, unless God's people are offering this world something unique, something attractive, something good and true and beautiful, then why would anyone come? Why would anyone want to be a part of what we're doing? Why would anyone buy into this mission if we're not distinct from those that we rub shoulders with on a daily basis. Our unbelieving friends and neighbors, they really have no reason to come to church or to Christ if we look no different than the world. Like the Israelites, we have a calling in this world. And we accomplish that calling through our distinctiveness, by affirming God's goodness and by standing in antithesis to anything that is opposed to God's way of flourishing. That's always been the calling of God's people and it's our calling too. Now, let's turn and take a look at where we find ourselves in relation to that calling by taking a look at Samson, Israel's 12th and final judge. Let's turn our attention to him. Likely the most familiar judge that we read about in this book. It's a tough few chapters that recount the story of Samson here. You see that Samson is impulsive. He's selfish. He's emotionally immature. The story is violent and romantic. It has a tragic ending as you follow along with it. And in fact, I'm a bit surprised that Hollywood has not jumped on the book of Judges yet for a blockbuster or a made-for-TV series. It would almost be perfect. Judges, and specifically the story of Samson, it's an entertaining read. But it's also a disturbing and confusing portion of the history of God's people. They turn to the culture that surrounds them. That's what they're doing. They lose their identity or distinctiveness as God's special people and they blend in by looking for love in all the wrong places, by looking for significance and meaning in all the wrong places. They see what seems to be working for those around them in the culture and they decide to try something new. Maybe what seems to be working for their neighbors will also work for them. And it's forgetting the love of God that is so tragic in these people's lives. It's the root of all their oppression, all of their misery. As a result of forgetting God's love and faithfulness and walking close with him, God hands them over to the Philistines for 40 years. And remember, by handing the people over to the Philistines, God intends to draw his people back to himself. The goal is always restoration. The intention is that God's people will realize what they've given up. They'll wake up in the midst of their misery and come running back to God, crying out to him for help. And that's normally what we've seen through this book. But did you notice that you don't see it here? You don't see that. Did you notice what's missing? Every other time in the book of Judges, when God's people experience oppression, they eventually cry out to God for rescue, but not this time. There is no cry for help. 
At this point, God's people are so used to oppression that they don't even know to cry out for rescue. They've resigned themselves, in a sense, to living in bondage. They've forgotten what they were created for. In a sense, they've just given up any hope for redemption and for change. And we share lots in common with them. I wonder where you've given up hope for redemption and change in your life this morning. Most of us would say that we believe God can change our lives. But functionally, we live in ways that never expect change to come. Where have you given up true hope for change and redemption this morning? Maybe for you it's a relationship or a secret sin or uncontrollable greed and need for more or thirst for power that is choking off compassion and mercy in your life, or envy that keeps you from enjoying God's good gifts to you, or just general low-grade apathy to the things of God. Maybe you've grown so used to these oppressors that you've just concluded that that's how life works. But what if we're saying no to the change that God offers as we trust and depend on Him? Do you believe that you can cry out to God for change this morning? That you can cry out to God for change this week and that he is able to bring redemption to your life? It's not just the fact that we don't believe redemption is possible. We also see something else about ourselves in this passage. We see that God's people, they lose connection with God. And when that happens, we begin to lose our ability to live with beauty and integrity and wholeness. We lose our distinctiveness when we lose connection with God. The very thing we need to bring blessing to the world is that connection, that distinctiveness, and we lose it. We see this as we're introduced to Samson at the beginning of chapter 14. Samson and his parents, they travel to Timnah. It's a city that was controlled by the Philistines. And while there, Samson sees a good-looking girl, and he demands that his parents let him take her as a wife. And his parents, being good Jewish people, they push back against this request because they know that it's not right in God's eyes for Israelites to intermarry with other nations. And it's important to recognize that the key word here is circumcised. She is uncircumcised or comes from an uncircumcised people. The problem is that this woman comes from an uncircumcised people. In other words, the issue is not interracial marriage here. The problem is an interfaith marriage uncircumcised people were not a part of God's community. They were not a part of God's people. They did not follow the God of the Bible. And they beg Samson to reconsider in verse three. Look at it. He said, they say, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? In other words, can't you just go find a nice Jewish girl to marry Samson? But Samson has lost connection with God. He isn't concerned about what's right in God's eyes. He responds in verse 5 by saying, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Samson is crafting his own rules for freedom and flourishing. He's disregarding what God wants for him. Samson is a picture of Israel. He's a picture of us in many ways. Completely assimilated, compromised, comfortable oftentimes. He was supposed to rescue Israel from the Philistines, but instead he wants to marry one of them. 
When we turn our eyes and attention away from God, then we begin to do what is right in our own eyes. And if you followed the story of Samson, you would see that this decision actually brings great misery and untold distress to his life and to his family. Doing what is right in our own eyes always brings regret and disintegration. It's kind of like corrosion over time. I wonder if you've ever experienced corrosion on your car battery before. I know I have. And over time, the battery connectors can become so corroded that the car actually stops receiving power from the battery. The car becomes disconnected from the battery through that corrosion. Well, in our passage, Israel loses connection with God in a sense. And left to themselves, they choose a path of destruction. And it invites us to ask the question this morning, how much of our despair and dysfunction in life is a result of having lost intimate connection with God. It's right in your own eyes to demand what you want, and what does it usually bring? It brings regret and despair. It's right in your own eyes to work and work and never take a day for rest. Where does it lead? Leads to anxiety and exhaustion. It's right in your own eyes to smear another person's reputation with gossip and slander. And where does it lead? It leads to feeling dirty and paranoid. What if we were created to live not based on what we feel is right, but to live in connection with the Lord? You know, I wonder if you've ever considered that instead of being repressive and constrictive, that doing what is right in God's eyes actually brings freedom and life and joy. Living in vibrant connection with God and doing what's right in His eyes is actually the way that you were created to live. You are going with the grain of your creation when you do that. A life of connection with God, it brings that freedom and beauty and wholeness that we all were meant to experience. We are meant to be a peculiar people. Would people see a difference if they got to know us, I wonder? in the way we treat our bodies, in the way we treat our money. You know, in first century Christians, they were strange and peculiar for the way they treated their bodies and the way they treated their money. They would be generous with their money and selfish with their bodies, where the world around them was generous with their bodies, but selfish with their money, in complete distinction to the world around them. What would people see as we use our bodies, our money, as they look at our families, how we use our time, the way we treat the marginalized? Like we mentioned before, God's people are called to be salt and light in a decaying and a dark world. But in the Samson story, Israel looks just like the dark and decaying world around them. We see ourselves in this short passage and how often we live without hope for change and without connection with God. And as a result, we lose our distinctiveness. But we also see that God wants something more for us. We see that he does not give up on us in our cynicism, in our rebellion, in our assimilation. Instead, he is at work for our good, even though we fight against it and even though we don't often see it. In this passage, we get a picture of God's commitment to his people, which is our last point. Even though God's people don't think to ask for rescue and change, that doesn't stop God from taking the initiative to bring rescue and change to their lives. God pursues his people in order to change them and redeem them. He once again raises up a rescuer, even though no one even thinks to ask for it. Did you notice how God has to raise up this deliverer? 
he has to start from scratch. There is no one left in Israel that God can use, apparently. They're completely bankrupt when it comes to spiritual leadership and vibrancy. So God comes in the form of an angel to a woman who is barren and tells her that she's going to have a son, a son who will be set apart for God's work. And this son is born in order to rescue God's people from their oppressors, to offer the possibility of redemption, even though they never asked for it. They never thought to ask for it. But we'll see that Samson, he was a deeply flawed savior or rescuer. He was a drunkard, a womanizer, a brawler. In our passage, his parents are perplexed at Samson's impulsive desires and decisions. They're left shaking their heads at his poor decisions. But then we read a comment from the narrator in verse 4 that gives us a different perspective. And this verse is really the key to the whole narrative. Look at it. Verse 4 His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God is behind the scenes throughout Samson's life, using his poor decisions to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And Samson, he does begin, he begins to save Israel from their oppressors, but he doesn't fully and finally finish the job, does he? There will have to be a better judge in order to fully and finally free God's people from their oppression to offer hope for redemption. And as we follow the story of God's rescue, we see that judge come along in the person of Jesus, the great rescuer himself. God shows up again. He shows up to a group of people who have by and large forgotten the love that he wants to give them. And he brings a miraculous birth. He raises up a rescuer from scratch because no one else could do the job. And Jesus comes to us even though we didn't ask for him to come and Jesus offers us rescue. And all we have to do is place our faith in his rescuing work. Even though we weren't looking for it, even though we didn't ask for it, God comes to us in Christ and he offers to rescue us from the bondage of our sin. He offers to connect himself with you, to reestablish that connection. And he does it in the most backward way. We see a glimpse of how God works in Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching for the first time about God's work through Jesus. And it sounds a lot like how God works through the sinfulness of his people in the book of Judges. Listen to Acts chapter 2. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Look, God was superintending and working for his people's good, even in the midst of sin and faithlessness. God was still at work, even in the bad choices, the evil choices of his people. I like how Ralph Davis puts it when he says this in his commentary on Judges. He says, frequently, all we can see are the onions of a situation or the bad things. The sin or the smell of disappointment seems to dominate the scene, seems to cover our whole map. But perhaps that is only the cover for Yahweh's secret work. Perhaps our greatest comfort is hidden in what we don't know or can't see. Perhaps it's from Yahweh 
who has his own saving design to work either through or in spite of the yuck and the muck. No one should forget verse four, he says, but his father and mother did not realize it was from Yahweh. What we don't, what we don't know may yet prove to be our deepest comfort. God pursues his wayward people. He won't let you go. He comes to you in the incarnation of Christ. And by entering into our sinful world, what does Jesus do? He gets himself killed. So unwanted is this savior, this rescuer, this judge, this Jesus, that all God's people want to do is kill him when they interact with him. It's the most sinful act the world has ever seen. The only pure, righteous individual to have ever lived is rejected, beaten, abused, shamed, and hung on a cross to die. But all the evil acts that brought an end to Christ's life are the very things that accomplish salvation from sin for God's people. God fulfills his promise of rescue from sin even through the sinful decisions and actions of his people. So serious is our predicament that it costs God everything in order to bring about the possibility of redemption and renewal to our lives and to this world. The life of Samson reminds us that God's purposes will be the ones that stand. He will use the sinful choices of humans to bring about his purposes in this world. And you can join him or you can be against him. You can assimilate or you can be distinct. But God is always going to win. His purposes will never fail. And that's comforting that your sin cannot thwart God's agenda. He is so committed to his mission of bringing blessing to the ends of the earth that Jesus comes and lives a perfect, distinctive life, the distinctive life that God's people were intended to live. And on the cross, as sinful men put Jesus to death, he is taking on our faithlessness and our failures to follow God's call on our life and crediting his life to our account. So we can move out confidently. We can embrace our distinctiveness and live into it, seeking to love our neighbors because we've been so loved by God. And we can know that God promises to use whatever we offer, even though it's tainted with sin more often than not, to bring about his grand purposes for redemption in this world. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word and for the reminder of comfort and hope that it brings us this morning. That though all of our efforts are tainted with sin, you still delight to use us to accomplish your mission of bringing restoration and renewal and blessing to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray that you would continue to build us up in that mission, continue to use us as agents of redemption, continue to help us to be reliant upon Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.